Welcome back to Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler, and I'm really excited because today we're back with Dara Star Tucker. She has a million followers on TikTok. She's a very big deal. Go follow her. That's star with two R's, Dara Star Tucker. And today I'm going to teach her all about the nullification crisis. If you didn't already listen, go back and listen to the last episode. She taught me and we discussed with a lot of great nuance all about Abraham Lincoln and specifically his attitudes on race, on black Americans, and on slavery, which were very complex and is a really good lesson on how I think history should be discussed with a lot of nuance and a lot of care. On today's episode, I'm going to teach her about the nullification crisis, which I promise you was an event you had to learn in U.S. history class. I promise you it was a bold word or a key term. You wrote something on your notes about like tariffs, South Carolina, anyway, and then you probably never thought about it ever again. The reason why I want to talk about it is that I think it can be used as a really great kind of counter argument or counter example to our discussions about what caused the Civil War in 1860. Because as you will hear me argue, this is my own kind of thesis, by the way, this is I'm putting out there into the world my argument that I'm making, and I'm giving my evidence and support to convince you that to me, the nullification crisis has all of the same elements as as the lead up to the Civil War in 1860. Almost all the players are the same, the factors are the same. The only difference is that, spoiler, in the nullification crisis, the issue wasn't about slavery, it was about other things. And lo and behold, spoiler alert, we don't erupt into a civil war. And so to me, when I get into these conversations, mostly on the internet with people who wanna make a really like sincere argument that the civil war was not about slavery, it was about economics or states' rights or heritage or whatever, the number one event that I then wanna talk to them about is the nullification crisis, and you will hear why. So enjoy the episode. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler, and my guest is Dara Star Tucker. Settle in and let's go back in time. Well, welcome to Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. I'm back with Dara Star Tucker. Last episode, we talked about Lincoln and his complicated stance on slavery and race. Um, welcome back. Do you want to reintroduce yourself just in case there's people tuning in that haven't listened to that episode yet? Uh, yeah, I'm Dara Star Tucker. I am, I've been TikTok friends uh, with Emily for a while now, I think you were probably one of the early people that I connected with Me on too. TikTok. Yeah. And I have watched your content very consistently, especially through the pandemic. And it just was such a, I don't know, such an anchor for me. So it's really cool to just be having an actual real life conversation with you. Yeah. I just admire how you contextualize things and how you're able just to make it all very conversational and to make us feel like we're we're just there, we're in it. You're kind of telling us about folks that you know, you know, like, yeah. a, like a friend. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks for saying that. I didn't even ask her to say that just so people know. But yeah, no, I feel the same way. I feel like part of part of what I'm changing with this podcast with this new format is just there's all these people that, you know, you'll make a video and they'll be like, oh, I want to stitch that to add another thing or I want to duet it. And like, that's fine. But it's way better to be able to just actually talk to you, like have a real conversation. So um, so on this episode, I'm going to kind of talk to you about the nullification crisis of 1832. And so I'm curious before we start, is this, is this an event you're already familiar with in any way? Do you already know anything about this event? Yeah, I have basic knowledge of the nullification crisis. I cannot say in any way, shape or form that I am an expert on it, but I know that this is the thing that a lot of people um, try to convolute with what caused the civil war when, mm-hmm. when people start talking about, you know, slavery and what, a, what, what a big part slavery played in the civil war then usually folks want to, the lost cause folks kind of want to throw back to nullification and say that this issue became 
a huge thing um, once again uh, at that time, which I don't think it ever fully went away. But I know that it has to do with tariffs. I know it has to do with South Carolina. Uh-huh, of course. Um, and, and the supremacy, it's this kind of a state's rights thing and the supremacy of the federal government versus the state uh, state's rights to uh, do this and that. So I don't want to tell the story for you, but yeah, I no, kind no, of this is great. understand that this is about tariffs on the products that were coming from the, um, from yeah, Europe. anyway, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> tariffs, which I will say if anyone is listening who's been a U.S. history student of mine knows that nothing makes me want to talk about it less than a tariff. Like I, (laughs) economic history, I'm just like, oh, even when we get to the Great Depression, I'm like, do we have to talk about economics? And so Senate Senate redistricting, is it, is it more boring than Senate redistricting? I think it's, I think it's worse. I think it's the (laughs) worst. I'm like, yeah, tariffs. I'm like, what do we even care? But this is a tariff that almost led to a civil war. And, and you're exactly right. This is an event. Well, I'll, I'll, first of all, first off, a lot of people don't really remember this event at all, or if they you learned about it in school. I guarantee it was in your textbook. It was a bold word, nullification crisis of 1832. And if you were like me, you went, okay, a tariff. They didn't like it. Jackson said, screw you, who cares, whatever. And then you just sort of move on. And it's almost like seen as this standalone event that just randomly happened in 1832. And I think it's way more interesting as, like you said, context for the Civil War. It's way more interesting of this midpoint of the growth of this states' rights movement, where it was at in the 1830s, And to me, I find the nullification crisis to be a very handy counter argument or question to people who want to argue that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, right? You hear this argument that's like, well, it was really about states' rights. It was about economic freedom and independence. It just just happened to be slavery at the time, but it was really about economics. It was really about southern states feeling kind of overwhelmed by northern interests. And when they make that argument, I love to then ask them about the nullification crisis. Because Mm -hmm. to me, and I'll get into the overview in a second, the nullification crisis has every element of 1860 except slavery. I mean, it has all the same elements. It has South Carolina being pissed about the federal government doing something it doesn't want. It has to do with states' rights, economic interests, um, or something that really could have devastated the Southern economy. It has it all. The only thing it doesn't have is slavery. And so to me, it's a really interesting case study of like, okay, well, could, could it have been, it, would we have actually had this civil war if it was about any other issue related to states' rights? So The basics of it is in 1828, under John Quincy Adams, Congress passes a tariff that's insanely high. Um, It's known, it's nicknamed across the country as the Tariff of Abominations. And we don't have to get into it, but it's like, it's crazy high, like to the point that I think my understanding is that Southerners, Southerners didn't want a tariff at all. And we can talk about why in a second. But there was so much public clamoring for it in the North that they said, fine, malicious compliance. We'll go along with this tariff, but we'll make it so high working with Northerners, that no one will ever pass it, right? They kind of thought they were going to sandbag the tariff. So it would be so high that no one would actually go along with it. And then they they proposed it, and then they did. The Northerners were like, actually, that sounds great. So it was, you know, from the beginning seen as really extreme. Um, Okay, so can I stop you and ask a question? Is that all right? Of course. So the confusion that I always have is like, who who was, I know this is about international trade with Europe. So who was being taxed obviously yeah, who likes tariffs and who doesn't hurt. right yeah. so southerners were being hurt so yes. was it that their products were being taxed going out or the northerners were being it was taxed european in? goods were being taxed coming in so what it was was if you think about the 1830s we're in this commercial revolution we're not really industrialized yet but we're getting there and you have these northern businesses that are emerging that are trying to compete with 
it, European counterparts, right? But they can't. You can't compete with England that's been doing this for you know a century or more at this point. And so they want protection. So this was a protectionist tariff. What it basically said is it is going to basically raise the price on imported goods from Europe by anywhere from like 35 to 45 percent. It was massive. And that was really good if you were a northerner, specifically a northern business owner, because all of a sudden your goods would be competitive. They would be cheaper mm -hmm. than the European counterpart, right? But it's a problem if your main, like, economic activity is agriculture. Because if you're a southerner and you get your wealth from agriculture, okay, but you're having to buy most of the manufactured goods on the market. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden there's two concerns. The one concern is the price of goods is just going to go up a lot, right? Because you are just inflating the price of goods coming in from Europe. But there was also the fear of a tariff war that England, who's buying all this cotton from the South, is going to be mad and is going to say, fine, then we're going to raise our own tariff and we're going to try to go find cotton other places, right? They're starting to get involved in Egypt and India. So there was this real fear from the Southerners that it's going to make the stuff we need to buy more expensive and it might make Europe pissed enough that they're going to look for other sources of, let's say, cotton elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So that was the issue. And it was, it was a real, that's what I say, it was like a real kind of economic crisis. I mean, it really was high enough that this would have been, this wasn't just like an annoying tax. This, this really, a lot of Southerners at least believed that this would have a devastating impact on their economy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so d did you already explain to me, and forgive me, because yeah. if, I'm, if I'm asking too many questions. No, no, never. That's not a thing. Why did John is it John Quincy Adams who said eighteen twenty eight? Why did he instate this tariff? Was it just for economic dominance, or why yeah. did he want to cripple the South, or why did he want to do this? No, suddenly? it didn't really seem like um, it didn't really seem like it was intended to hurt the South. It was more seen as like this is kind of Hamiltonian. It goes all the way back to like Hamilton and Jefferson of Hamilton being like the future of the United States is in industry, which was a debate we'd been having right since the 1790s is, are we going to be Jefferson's a nation of farmers or are we going to be Hamilton's like a nation of industry and bankers and business? Right. Mm -hmm. And so John Quincy Adams was a northerner. He was, you know, a descended from a federalist, right? He was very much would have been in Hamilton's camp. And so he's just seeing it as his own interests and his party's interests going, yeah, we need to promote business. We need to protect these new businesses. You can also make the argument that Southern cotton isn't going anywhere, right? That like England can say they're going to stop buying Southern cotton, but they're not going to do that, right? Their industrial revolution depends on it. So I think for him, it was just, this is, this is evidence though of what in U.S. history classes we call sectionalism, right? The rise of kind of this North versus South mentality, whereas earlier in Jefferson's day, it was Federalist versus Anti-Federalist, right? Mm -hmm. And that tended to be North and South, but it wasn't always. But now it's really solidifying into like, the northern economy and the southern economy are two very different economies. And so what's good for one inherently might be kind of bad for the other and vice versa. Mm -hmm. right. So this tariff gets passed. Um, Southerners are really mad. South Carolina is especially mad. Jackson then comes into office. So this is passed right at the end of Adams's presidency. A lot of Southerners are like, our guy Jackson's got us, right? He was a Jacksonian Democrat. He's kind of starting this new era of the common man. He's from the West, from the frontier, but there's a lot of Southerners who think he's going to like go in and scrap this tariff and he's going to come up with something more reasonable, but he doesn't. Jackson, being Jackson, does whatever the hell he wants <laughs> mm -hmm. and is like, actually, no, I think this will be good for business. I'm totally fine with it. And so people feel really betrayed, um, especially Jackson's vice president, who is South Carolinian John C. Calhoun, right? John C. Calhoun is like 
the poster child for states' rights. I mean, he is, mm-hmm. like, the guy who's making this big argument. So this is going to lead to John C. Calhoun eventually resigning, being one of only eventually two vice presidents that ever resigned. The other is Nixon's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's these few years where basically South Carolina especially starts saying a lot of things, right? They're not doing a lot of things, but they're saying a lot of things, saying we don't think this tariff is constitutional, and we believe that it so violates the Constitution and what the federal government is allowed to do that we can just nullify it. We can just say we're not going to follow this tariff. It's that bad. And this idea of nullifying a law, nullification, goes all the way back to the Constitution, right? And so I want to do a quick detour back to Jefferson and Madison, which is there are these documents known as the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions. Um, Are you familiar with these? No. Oh, great. Okay. So it's in the 1790s, 1798, 1799. These are essentially like op-eds, for lack of a better... I mean, they they don't have any standing. They're not like legal documents. They're resolutions passed by the Kentucky and the Virginia legislatures. John Adams I had passed this really controversial law, the Alien and Sedition Acts. It was like, it was bad. It was basically like, you can't complain about the government at all. Like, you can't have any issues with what I do as president. So it was pretty egregious. But what happened was... Jefferson and Madison then kind of wrote these resolutions saying, by the way, we actually think that the way that we kind of created this constitution with all the states kind of agreeing to join it, that that means that states can also agree and disagree on individual laws and that that a state really has the power, is more powerful than, than the federal government so that when there's an egregious law like this one, the Sedition Acts, that we think that states can just say no. We're actually like, and, and they actually hearken back to the Declaration of Independence. They're like, we believe it's our duty, like as Americans, when in the course of human events, right, we feel like the federal government is getting too powerful and overstepping, that not only we can do it, but it's our duty to fight back against that and say we in this state or whatever are not going to follow it. So that's the first theory of this idea of nullification. Again, it's just an op-ed. It's just saying, by the way, we think this is the, this is the case. It's never really tested. I want to note that it wasn't publicly known that Thomas Jefferson and Madison wrote it. They were written anonymously, and it should be noted that Thomas Jefferson was running for the presidency against John Adams. So mm. this was mostly a political document being like, look how bad John Adams is. These two states are really pissed. Meanwhile, he's the one who wrote the things that they were pissed about. <laughs> but so the idea is that this idea of nullification had been circling for a few decades and no one had tested it. This idea of like, well, shoot, are we, I mean, In these first years of the United States, every branch of government is having to test its boundaries, right? The Constitution is a really sparse document. So you have like the Supreme Court is going, I mean, the Supreme Court, what it describes they can do is like a few sentences in the Constitution. So even in this era of the early 1800s, you had Marbury versus Madison, where the Marshall Court is just saying, you know what? We think that the Supreme Court does have the power to rule laws unconstitutional. And that was nowhere in the Constitution itself, but they kind of inferred it. They were like, if we're going to be ruling on these, there are going to be times where we might actually say, you know what, the way this was worded by Congress just on its own is unconstitutional and should be thrown out. So every branch of government, states, local, national, they're all figuring this out. We're all trying to orient ourselves on like, what can we do? What can't we do? And no one has really tested out this idea of can a state effectively nullify a law that they think is unconstitutional. And so South Carolina is going to try it essentially. Mm. They're going to say we think they can. I do just also want to mention that this idea of nullification was controversial from the beginning. (laughs) It was not generally accepted even by just one half of the country. George Washington was like appalled when he read these Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and was like, he said this would quote, dissolve the union or produce coercion. He's like, 
we if if we continue on with this thinking like it's going to be really bad so mm-hmm. i do want to mention i don't want to get it give it too much validity because it was sort of just a theory that was proposed but so with that south carolina starts saying like we're just going to nullify it which essentially means we're not going to honor this tariff basically like we're not going to put this tariff on goods that are coming in you you can try to force us but we're going to fight over it like unless you want to send like customs officers down which of course they don't really have we're just going to pretend this law doesn't exist in south carolina and so they're going back and forth back and forth um a few years pass with these just debates no one's really doing anything about it but they're discussing it and in 1832 congress is like we did it we passed a new tariff we've reduced jackson worked with us it's all going to be fine they passed the reduced tariff and it's not enough. And South Carolina is then at that point, they have to put their money where their mouth is because they've kind of drawn a line in the sand and said, you have to get rid of this tariff of abominations entirely or else Congress passes a reduced tariff, but it's still there. And so now they're in the or else time of this going, oh, shoot, what are we going to do now? So this is when they officially they've been talking, they officially adopt the ordinance of nullification. Um, And it declares the tariff of 1828 and 1832, quote, null, void, and no law, nor binding upon the state, its officers or citizens. Like, we do not recognize this law in our state. And it's um, justified, and that ordinance is written by John C. Calhoun, who is Jackson's vice president. (laughs) He resigns and then goes back to South Carolina and leads this sort of crusade against Hmm. his former running mate. So... Um, and I'll, I'll read to you a few quotes from this ordinance of nullification to like get us into the mind space of kind of why why they're thinking this is an okay thing to do. They say things like, quote, in like manner as they adopted the Constitution, meaning this is how we adopted the Constitution. All the states had to agree. Right. And so we're assuming that means states can also opt out. Um, they say, quote, the right of the states in reference to an unconstitutional act of the government. So, again, they're arguing like we're actually being the true Americans here <laughs> by mm-hmm. not following this what we think is unconstitutional law. Um, it should be noted that it was entirely constitutional. <laughs> like the one thing the Constitution is really clear about is like taxes and the ability to regulate, especially foreign yes. trade. <laughs> right? yeah. So it's kind of a weird topic. For them to really like draw the line in the sand because mm-hmm. they're referencing right parts of the constitution that specifically say like no no we actually we actually do have this right and so um jackson's argument back says things like this is a strange position that any one state may not only declare an act of congress void but prohibit its execution and saying like where does this end now every single law that gets passed any state can just opt in or opt out of every law it's chaos mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense so you may be getting to this. No, go for it. But I, I just did a video on states' rights, and so all of this stuff is super fresh in my mind right now. So what uh, factor, I guess, did the, um, the, the 10th Amendment and the Supremacy Clause play? What part did those things play in this? Because those are always the, you know, the constitutional documents that are cited when states' rights are in, in question. Yeah. So... I will say Jackson had the backing of like former president Madison too. There was kind of a coalition across the board. It wasn't really a political issue. It was, they were all going this, no, no, clearly Congress has the right to impose this tariff. They Mm -hmm. cited article one, section eight of the constitution that gives Congress the power to quote, lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, which is what tariffs are. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're like, this is actually one of the few things in the constitution that is expressly written out. So, right. Even if you're a strict constructionist and you're like, only if it's said exactly in the Constitution, this is actually one of the rare things that 
is explicitly said Congress can do. <laughs> so, so I will say, like, they're wrong. I mean, they're just wrong to say that this is unconstitutional. Now, now they're right to say they don't like it and they feel like their their needs are being overlooked, maybe in favor of northern kind of manufacturing interests and that they're feeling like this democratic process maybe isn't working for them anymore. But mm-hmm. they are they are wrong that I mean, Congress is, if anything, allowed to issue tariffs, especially related to foreign trade. That's not mm-hmm. something that we can have each state regulating its own foreign trade. We tried that under the Articles of Confederation and it was a nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. So with that, this is when we get to like, is there gonna be a civil war? Um, South Carolina issues a response to Jackson's argument and says like, okay, we're taking it one step further. They're trying to call Jackson's bluff, clearly never having met Andrew Jackson. <laughs> They're like, we'll call his bluff. And they say like, we have the right they say whenever it may deem such a course necessary for the preservation of its liberties. Again, they're, they're speaking like this is a declaration of independence, right? They're saying our state will repel force by force. Like we are going to defend our right to like not honor this tariff with force. And they start actually gathering essentially a militia and saying like, you can come and try to force us to collect this tariff, but you're going to have to fight a battle over it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jackson responds, as Jackson does, by passing a force bill and being like, bet, I will. Like, I've just gotten Congress to agree that I can use force. I can send the Navy down. Like, so I'm going to call your bluff. And so the thing I find interesting where I want to kind of wrap up and have more of a discussion about this is I want to know why it didn't descend into a civil war. Because up to this point, we're following almost word for word what's going to happen in 1860, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's... Southern states have expressed that they are they don't believe Lincoln should be president. They've even not allowed him on the ticket in a lot of places. He gets elected anyway. They say, well, we don't honor that. Like, he's not our president. Um, it's South Carolina specifically, right? South Carolina is saying, like, we're going to resist this by force. They're at Fort Sumter, right? And they don't allow um, the Union troops to kind of they, they force them out of Fort Sumter. Up till this point, we're almost like word for word what's going Mm -hmm. on, right? Lincoln says, I'll send ships down to like enforce this if I need to. And so the question I always want to know is like, okay, well, what what was different about this? And what was different about this is that no one else joined them. South Carolina was full on. I was just going to ask, why was it only South Carolina? Exactly. (laughs) And that's the big question. This is this big puzzle or mystery that I find so fascinating. I don't think it's a mystery, by the way, but that I find so fascinating is that everything else is there. It's like an economic crisis, northern interests over southern interests. It's a northern government that's kind of ignoring the needs of, of southern kind of white agriculturists and plantation owners. It's all there. They're calling upon states' rights, but no one else joins them. And in fact, like the Alabama legislature pronounced this doctrine, quote, unsound in theory and dangerous in practice. Like Alabama was like, I don't think we can do that. I don't think we can nullify things. Georgia said it was, quote, mischievous, rash and revolutionary. Mississippi chided the South Carolinians for acting with, quote, reckless precipitancy. Like not only are they not backing up South Carolina, they're going, whoa, 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 we're not with them. Like we don't actually agree with this concept of nullification. We don't actually think that's right. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts or theories or guesses, why? Like, why would these other Southern states not join in on this cause? Why would they not only not join in, but be like, hey, South Carolina, I actually think you can't nullify this law. Like, I don't think that this is the thing that I don't think states' rights goes this far, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I don't have any theories at all. I was, oh, I, that was the very thing that occurred to me. It was just like, well, why is no one 
yeah. um, joining them? Why are they alone in this fight? I don't know. I'm yeah, curious. me too. And that's, you know, when I started looking into this, I was like, well, this is really weird because again, it really feels like if you are someone that's making the argument that the civil war was all about economics and states' rights, then my counter question is, then why didn't the nullification crisis lead to the civil war? Because mm -hmm. if it had nothing to do with slavery, then this event had every other making except the slavery issue. And in fact, it's not that the slavery issue was absent. It's that a lot of Southern states were terrified at the concept of nullification. They were terrified that, well, if we set a precedent that a state can just nullify any law of Congress, what's to stop a Northern state from nullifying, say, a Fugitive Slave Act? Right. Mm. What's to all of a sudden take these northern states to say, well, fine, then we're going to pick and choose the laws that we follow as well. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pick and choose to not follow the laws that southerners want. Mm. And so specifically, a lot of historians believe it was the issue of slavery itself that made other southern states, future Confederate states, not join South Carolina. Right. So not only was it like, well, they didn't all secede because it wasn't it wasn't about slavery. It wasn't as important to them, but actually like they turned their back on the state's rights argument in order to preserve slavery, right? So Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, they literally were willing to throw the state's rights argument of nullification out <laughs> and be like, that's too dangerous because it could be dangerous to the institution of slavery. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially since um, in the um, articles of secession, mm -hmm. That's a lot of what was at issue, particularly with South Carolina, just like, hey, you all in the North have an obligation to return our, yeah. <laughs> our runaway slaves and exactly. you are holding our property. And this is part of what they were this is part of what they seceded over. Yeah. And it's really important to note that, like, I mean, now because of the Civil War, when we hear states rights, we think Southerners Confederacy. But there were Northerners arguing for states rights. There were abolitionists going, should we secede and just not mm. participate in this government that's allowing slavery to occur? I mean, some of the earliest, most realistic calls for secession for se secession were from Northern abolitionists hmm. saying like, well, maybe this could be our most defiant act of resistance is to say, we're going to remove ourselves from a country that is allowing slavery to continue. Hmm. And so it's really interesting because we now think, well, states' rights was the Southern thing. Well, states' rights was the conversation everyone was having. Everyone was wondering like, how far can we take this, right? How mm -hmm. far can a state go? And again, South Carolina felt like this tariff was far enough. South Carolina was willing to secede over the tariff. So mm. I don't know, I guess if you're a South Carolinian, you could maybe say, yeah, for us, the Civil War could have happened over anything related to like our economic freedom. But it's fascinating that all the other future Confederate states not only didn't go along with it because it wasn't seen as enough of a threat, right? Slavery, getting rid of slavery is, was too much of a threat, but they were actually willing to like turn their backs on South Carolina and turn their backs on this concept of states' rights because they were so worried that if we had this precedent set that like maybe states' rights could trend in the direction of the North and abolition. Mm. Um, so what, what do you think it was that made South Carolina exceptional in this case? Why were they willing to, to make this break? I actually genuinely don't know. And I'm, I'll give you an educated guess, but I'll just say that this is fully an educated guess that it does seem like South Carolina had some specific firebrand individuals like John C. Calhoun who were some of the most prominent advocates of this theory of nullification? Mm -hmm. I will just, as a side note, it may not even be related, but if, if one were to actually begin to try to investigate the causes for that, why it's always South Carolina, um, a little side note, 
is that that it was a major it was a major uh, port for the in, yes. importation of of slaves. I know that my I have traced my family's mm. history back to um, South Carolina. That's where our our to family's Carlson. history of yes of slavery began in this country, and then they made their way to Alabama, and then Arkansas, I think, and then Oklahoma, which is where I'm from. So wow. that may have something to do with it. Maybe a, um, just a stronger maybe the institution of slavery had a stronger hold on South Carolina for that reason and their economy for that reason. Yeah. And I'm going to, what I'm going to promise to do is I'll do a little fact check kind of at the end of this, when I can go and explore this, because I do think that I'm remembering something now that if we're looking at enslaved people per capita, that South Carolina had maybe the densest population of enslaved people per capita. I think that's true, but I'll do a fact check and clarify that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I do think that's one of the reasons why it was one, the most fearful of the idea of abolition um, and also tended to be kind of the leader. They then also had these political leaders like Calhoun, who just sort of became the voice of the movement in the way that the voice of sort of anti-federalists and Southern interests during the constitutional era was all in Virginia. Right. And it's like it kind of just happened that way. And it also just happened that we had George Washington, Jefferson and a bunch of people who kind of made Virginia into that state. And I think South Carolina became that for this era. Mm-hmm. So um, this ends essentially with with nothing. I mean, it, assen- it it ends essentially Jackson calls their bluff and says, fine, like, I'll go to war over this. I'm Jackson. I do whatever I want. I mean, Jackson literally like ignores the Supreme Court on a regular basis. So he's like, fine, I'll do that. Um, And South Carolina not getting any support from any other states basically just back down and then they pass a a more reduced tariff later on and it just sort of fizzles away. But the idea now is there, right? And the playbook is sort of there of like, okay, well, we now see, for example, if you're South Carolina, we see where the line is. We thought maybe a lot of other Southern states would be willing to go along with us just over any issue of economic freedom and independence and power, but clearly not. And that's why I really like thinking about this event as a possible counterargument for anyone who's like, no, no, it was just about economics. It wasn't about slavery at all. Because if it was, then this event really should have exploded into the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other, I do want to like concede that the other argument that could be made is that Jackson just was a way more... I'll just say scary president to the Southerners. Like I'm sure the Southerners kind of knew that like, Oh shoot, Jackson's a little crazy. Like he might actually do it. Whereas maybe they thought Lincoln would be willing to kind of let the Southern States go. I don't know. So there's other factors, of course, it's not this simple, but I do think it's really fascinating that um, one, the issue of States rights is really complicated. It was a concept that different states for different reasons were kind of toying with and going, can we do this? Can we use this to our advantage? And that really no state besides South Carolina ever felt like it was worth it to Mm. bring up this incendiary states rights issue until it was over slavery, right? Until Mm. it's 1860. And we're afraid that Lincoln is going to come and take all of the slaves away. So Mm -hmm. that's my argument. That's my, that's my thesis. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts, questions? Um, well, I've been interjecting all throughout. I no, mean, it's I just find this stuff to be um, fascinating. And um, I have not really done a whole lot of study about Andrew Jackson and why his, his personality may have actually impacted um, this whole crisis. Um, can you tell me, I guess, I may be even getting out of the purview of all of, all of this and um, what you're speaking about today, but... Um, the Missouri Compromise came along mm-hmm. just a little bit later. Can you tell me how 
the nullification crisis maybe interacted with that and impacted that? Because it feels like the kind of bridge issue between the nullification crisis and the Civil War. Yeah. So what happens is this is this whole era of sectionalism. And actually, the Missouri Compromise came four. It was in 1820. Wenny, I believe. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm With, sorry. No, no, I'm getting but, all twisted up. But you're exactly right. So there's then another, there's the Compromise of 1850 that comes a little bit after. So the nullification crisis is almost actually perfectly in the middle of the okay. Missouri Compromise, which is, yeah, really the first time that we're like really officially kicking the can further down of like, right, every time we expand, every time we gain, gain new land through whatever means, we now have to decide what are we going to do about slavery. So mm-hmm. the Missouri Compromise is the first where we say, for the most part, we're going to do North is free and South is enslaved, right? right. Um, the nullification crisis, again, I think was, I think everyone was too nervous to bring up the issue of states' rights surrounding slavery. So I think, like, that's why it doesn't really enter into this conversation, and that's why I think South Carolina, to some extent, was almost testing everyone of going, mm-hmm. are we actually pissed enough about all this other stuff that we could use this nullification on any sort of economic threat. And that's why I say, like, it seems like they found, no, it's not incendiary enough. It's not going to be until slavery itself is threatened that Mm -hmm. most Southern states are going to be willing to actually try out this, this philosophy. But I will say that after this, and I don't know if it's directly because of this, but right after this is when Congress passes a gag rule, a gag order, saying, like, we're just literally not going to talk about slavery. Like, Mm. it is so incendiary. Like, we saw even with this that was just about a tariff, we saw how angry they got. So there was a period of at least a decade, I believe, where literally you were not allowed to bring the topic of slavery onto the floor for any discussion. Because they just thought, it's too much. We can't touch it, right? Um, It comes back into discussion with the Mexican-American War in the 1840s because, of course, we then gain this whole big territory and have to decide Mm. what to do with it. And so that's where the second big compromise comes in the Compromise of 1850, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of different things. It's like we uh, accept Texas as a slave state and California as a quote unquote free state. Um, The biggest thing there was this incredibly harsh Fugitive Slave Act that is basically forcing now northern states to comply and, and essentially like making it to where northerners can't look the other way and can't kind of just like disobey this Fugitive Slave Law. Now, if they if people believe that they that they knew someone was a runaway enslaved person and they didn't do anything about it, well, now they can directly get in trouble. And so mm. this is where, this is the next time we start to hear conversations about nullification coming up is Northern states are looking back and going, well, can we nullify that law? Mm. Can I in Massachusetts, can we just say, we think that law is unconstitutional and we're not going to abide by it, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is where the conversation around nullifying a law and using kind of your state's rights to supersede Congress was really only pulled out on the issue of slavery with any success, right? On, and it was, But it was pulled out on either side. Um, and really, that Compromise of 1850 is actually what pushed a lot of white moderate people to the extreme, right? There were a lot of white moderate people who were like, well, slavery is really bad, but it's far away. But then when it was brought to their doorstep and they were like, but actually, you have to actively help us seek out these fugitive people and return them. That's when a lot of white moderates were like, well, don't drag me into this. If, I, if you're going to make me choose a side, I'm going to choose the side of not slavery, right? Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, it comes back around right in 1860. And again, I just think in comparison, and you can say that this nullification crisis primed South Carolina and primed the southern states to kind of be prepared for that next generation in 1860, where it's going to happen much more quickly. But I think it's also a really good example of the fact that, like, it just shows that you 
you needed, I don't think the Civil War would have happened any other way if the institution of slavery itself hadn't been threatened. And we can see that because it didn't happen in 1832, when by all accounts it kind of should have. Um, and then it did happen almost identically in 1860. And really the only difference is the institution of slavery itself was being mm -hmm. threatened, not just their like economics in general. Mm -hmm. So there you go. I, I think you've made your case. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm no PhD. I don't have the, I haven't gone and done the research, but, but yeah, I just, I think it's interesting. Again, I want to, I guess I want to be really clear that I'm not suggesting that this is even the best argument for why the civil war was about slavery, because there's right. so many strong <laughs> so arguments many about like, right. Like I, I should have said that at the beginning that like, <laughs> I know I'm not convincing it. I hope I'm not convincing anyone of this. To me, this is just like one more argument to add to your arsenal, right. Of when you're, encountering people who say it was just about the economy is about the state's rights it's like well one like you said read the articles of secession they explicitly say like it's about slavery yeah. right i mean they explicitly say it um lincoln knew it right we talked about that in the last episode but right. even if you want to get cute and you want to add in more arguments you can kind of bring people into this topic and say great well then explain to me why it didn't happen here so again, this is in no way the most compelling argument because there's way more compelling ones out there, but it's just one more to add in case you feel like you come across someone on the internet and you want to have a little chat with them about yeah. the Civil War. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you put out several options in front of me and I, because I have studied kind of a lot around the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln and everything, I always kind of run into the nullification, nullification crisis because people tend to want to throw that in as a some sort of red herring as to the... Mm cause of the civil and all of this stuff. And so I've always kind of had more curiosity about it. I want to know, were you surprised that someone would choose the nullification crisis? Is this something, like you said, that feels feels kind of boring and just ho-hum? And were you like, please, somebody ask me about the nullification crisis because no one wants to talk about this? Um, maybe both. I was not surprised that you chose the nullification crisis just based okay. on your own content. I was like, oh, great. Yeah, you're going to be really <laughs> fascinated by, by this, I hope. But it also is one of those things that, yeah, you know, walking down the street, I don't get strangers just randomly asking me to talk about the nullification crisis. So this is pretty exciting. And I, and I do think, like you said, it gets brought up a lot, you know, when you say the Civil War is about slavery. And it's really funny because some people will say, well, South Carolina was ready to secede over a tariff. And it, again, it's like this red herring. You go, yeah, but they didn't. And no yeah. one else did. And in fact, right, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia actively were like, whoa, whoa, we're not with South Carolina. Like, we don't think that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so some people think they're making a point by saying, we'll go back and look at the nullification crisis, right? South Carolina was ready to secede and it wasn't about slavery. And you can go, fine, I'll give that to South Carolina. But every other future Confederate state, this was like a little test for them. And they went, no, 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 no. We're not going to mm -hmm. touch that. We're not going to risk that unless it's about something way more important to us, which it mm -hmm. won't be until 1860. So, yeah. It's a nice little gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've given me a little, a few more weapons in my, my arsenal to kind of, I don't argue with people as much anymore in my me comments, either. but if I, if I feel the need to, to clap back a little bit, now you've given me just a little more ammunition. So Beautiful. I I'm so that. glad. My mantra is, um, my mantra is the comments are not for you. That's my mantra to myself. Oh, wow. Is I'm like, the comments are not for you. Like you don't need to respond to every comment, but it is sometimes, it's sometimes hard. It's so. tempting. Yeah, it is, tempting. it is very tempting. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining me. One more time, where can people go to find you and find your work? Oh, uh, Dara Star Tucker. Um, I I am that on pretty much every platform. On Instagram, I'm Dara Tucker B. 
Um, and I, I have a, a, a show. I'm a singer by trade. I'm a jazz singer. So I have a show in New York on the 11th of September at Disney's Jazz Club. So, yeah, you can find that at the link in my, my bio and pretty much all of my, my socials. Perfect. Yeah. And if you don't already, if you're on TikTok or Instagram, you should definitely go follow Dara Startucker. I will say the production value on your videos is way higher than mine. Like <laughs> just in general, right? I mean, if you like my content, you're going to really like hers. And so I really appreciate you coming and I really appreciate you talking to me about this today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just honored to, um, to be here with you. Like I said, I've been a viewer of your content for a long time. I just love your, you don't need high production value. You have a very conversational style. You know your stuff. And for TikTok, it really doesn't matter. I mean, people just, they want the information. And so yeah. you're, you're one of, one of the best at relaying that. So I'm, I'm honored to be asked to do this today. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Well, have a good one. You too. Thank you so much for listening. Now, if nothing else, you hopefully understand why your teacher made you like do a key term identification of the nullification crisis. And if you come across someone on the internet, you can now point them to this episode or make the argument themselves and take all the credit for it. That's totally fine. But please like and share and subscribe. Go review this podcast. Let people know that I exist. That's the best way is like word of mouth telling people about this cool podcast you heard of this history teacher, just like in her bedroom, ranting about history to other people. If you also want to support the podcast, one of the other best ways is to join patreon.com slash anti-social studies and just go follow me on TikTok, Instagram, wherever. Thank you for your support and I'll talk to you next week.